Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Lori Garver was a NASA Deputy Administrator from 2009 to 2013. She'd been the principal advisor on aerospace issues to three presidential candidates and led the NASA transition team for President Obama. She's a senior fellow at Harvard University School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, the recipient of the 2020 Lifetime Achievement Award for Women in Aerospace, and she's been awarded three NASA Distinguished Service Medals. In her new book, Escaping Gravity, My Quest to Transform NASA and Launch a New Space Age, she describes the complex and often troubled history of our space program. Book is published by Diversion Books and brings Lori Garver to our show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Leonard. Oh well, this is really important. Uh, I'm I'm going to jump all over the place time-wise because I I think that the what happened in 2008 um, with the Mars space landing mission is something that I thought I would start with. Okay. It was, it was scheduled to launch the following summer was already $400 million over its $1.5 billion budget. What were its problems? The Mars Science Laboratory was what was taking curiosity to, uh, w- would be the most um, capable rover we would ever land on another planet. And we were, for the first time, trying out this new landing system. You know, we'd done things with airbags, but that didn't work for something so large. So there was this sky crane, a series of parachutes and retro rockets. And I don't, they had not had the full testing and didn't feel, you know, I, I'm not sure at all that uh, have landed safely if we had rushed it. Well, the window to send the spacecraft to Mars opened only every 26 months. And a delay would push the launch date to 2011, increase costs to $2.5 billion for the project. Why was there such a long window for a a Mars launch? Well, the planetary alignment, uh, each of our planets uh, rotate around the sun at different rates, and we use the gravity assist and catch up as the planet is going. So while you could get there at another time, it would take you years So this is the closest approach, and you want to meet that window. And between the Earth and Mars, that comes around just about every two years. And you have an opening of um, just under a month where you can launch within that period of time and get there. At the time, you had an advisory role with Barack Obama. What did you recommend? Correct. I had been asked to lead his transition team for NASA, Uh, He was just president-elect, so that is the period of time when you are not in charge. Mm -hmm. And my recommendation and that of my entire team was to give them the time to make sure that when they got to Mars, after all this time and money, they would give give it a best chance for success. I had been at NASA in the 1990s when we had landed successful missions on Mars, but we had also lost a couple spacecraft on Mars and knew that this is the public's money and we wanted to give them every chance to get a return on that. On August 4th, 2012, the day before the scheduled landing, you gave a speech to the Planetary Society and you received a death threat on that day? Why? I received a death threat on that day, and I 
probably had received them previously. Some of this is just comes with the territory of being a senior person in government. This one, however, just was a taken... senior person being a woman <laughs> was second. being a woman a factor as well. <laughs> you you truly never know, and the FBI never gave me the information to say whether that was true the this particular threat came in the way of an envelope of white powder and so the person who opened the envelope was put in quarantine while they tested it i don't know what the message said but because i was traveling there in pasadena for uh, the being at the jet propulsion lab who ran this mission being there for the landing just really as an observer um they wanted to get me in a protected place in case this this was a bigger threat than it really turned out to be. And I suspect you didn't think that working for NASA would be dangerous in that way. <laughs> I, I did not at all. In fact, the policies that I drove started in the 90s and I felt um, were very logical and would would have been accepted without such pushback. But I really recognize that what we were trying to do and what's happening now is is one of those things that whenever you are disrupting a way of doing business, and this was a, you know, hundreds of billions of dollar business, the aerospace industry, people feel very threatened by change. And so proposing the changes that I did at NASA was, um, controversial really because of that. And I think it is harder for people to accept this from a woman. I also don't have a technical background. I, I was maybe, you know, an easy target. They thought. You, <laughs> uh, uh, you write that one of your goals for NASA was to break the cycle of spending taxpayer dollars on programs designed to sustain jobs and contracts in key congressional districts, similar to government spending on the military. So were you just ruffling some feathers along the way? Well, as I said, these policies seem very logical for our country. You know, we're, uh, we don't have the government still running airlines, for instance. We in the government drive technologies and we turn over um, the investments that the public have made so that the private sector can innovate, reduce costs, open markets, help our economy, help our national security. These are all classical things that government is for. But NASA has been trapped in the past. Their success in Apollo at a dictated, you know, we call them cost plus contracts in government, mean you you allow a contractor to dictate what they are going to spend, and if it takes them longer, you just pay them more plus a, um, a fee for the pleasure of doing business with you. So this is not a way to incentivize success. Um, it did succeed in incentivizing success when you have a race to the moon and money was not an issue. But since then, of course, we money is an issue. And the goal was to reduce the cost and increase the accessibility to space. And that wasn't something that was happening in the 50 years since Apollo very um, efficiently. And so, yes, I became the person who drove that initiative within the government in the Obama administration. Well, the uh, NASA kind of grows out of defense, doesn't it? The defense program. So... That's um, exactly right. These are the same players. And so, so how would you compare operations <laughs> in the two? You say you want to make things more efficient. Uh, should, are there ways to make the Department of Defense more efficient? 
Absolutely. One of my conclusions in the book and one of the reasons I wrote it is because I think we've had this a positive experience. It took a little longer than we hoped, but we now have a system that transports astronauts to and from the space station at a tenth of the cost that, that we had previously been doing it in the shuttle program because it was developed privately. That's SpaceX doing it, and Boeing is about to come on as a second competitor here. They just had a successful test flight last month. So the aerospace industry does this kind of thing in the military and defense and intelligence arena as well. And you better believe that a lot of folks in the Pentagon are looking into how NASA did this so effectively and trying to structure contracts this way as well. Well, the SpaceX, for example, that's Elon Musk. There's also Jeff Bezos's uh, Blue Orange Origin and Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic. Uh, according to one source, for a suborbital trip on Virgin Galactic's Spaceship Two and Blue Origin's New Shepard, seats typically cost $250,000 to $500,000. And flights beyond that to actual orbit, a much higher altitude, are far more expensive, fetching more than $50 million per seat. So if they're charging <laughs> private individuals so much, I guess they can be a little generous to the government. <laughs> well, we should be very clear that those those suborbital vehicles, both Bezos and Blue Origin and Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic, were developed without government funds. Those were their private businesses. And SpaceX has done a lot on their own as well. However, uh, SpaceX has won a lot of government contracts now. They have lowered the cost of launching not just astronauts, but satellites and spacecraft for this nation. And the Defense Department has benefited, as has the national security um, agencies, from this. Whereas we had a monopoly provider in the United Launch Alliance. They had been a consortium of Lockheed and Boeing, and they could charge these very hard, high rates, hundreds of millions of dollars for a launch, which meant our country was no longer launching commercial satellites. That business had gone to China, Russia, and the French. So the US is again, as of 2020, the leading launcher of commercial spacecraft. That returns to our economy. So I know there's a lot of concern about uh, you know, subsidizing billionaires. It's, it's really not the factual part of this, <laughs> what is happening. We have been able to structure contracts with them that are of greater value to the taxpayer. But I think the aerospace companies are all going to figure this out and be able to be more competitive as well. And that was the goal, a competition that would make our economy and national security and all of NASA's programs be able to be more efficient and effective. I'm just wondering about doing business with some of these people. Elon Musk's daughter no longer wants to keep that name because she doesn't want to be associated with her father. Jeff Bezos has uh, had some embarrassing things in the news. So, um, but you call them space pirates. You think that what they've been doing is, is good on the whole? Well, as I know, space pirates can have both positive and negative connotations. Um, the the book outlines some of some of things certainly where I disagree with them personally, and I think 
part of the message of the book is, you know, not everyone, they can be good at one thing. And I don't want to endorse all their views by any means. Um, we have had leaders of aerospace industry companies who've done some pretty despicable things as well. And we have, I think, a long ways to go, especially in aerospace, on having a more diverse um, and inclusive workforce. Um, but yes, there are concerns because as a charismatic leader of a company that is now doing so much for NASA, you want to make sure um, that is not a distraction for people. I know that Gwen Shotwell, the president of SpaceX, um, is is really running the day-to-day -day and uh, probably uh, more uh, in the leadership, and they have now 10,000 employees. So this is not a a small company, but but yes, I, I do understand that he's more visible than most CEOs and because they don't have shareholders, you know, Tesla went public, but SpaceX has not. So his investors, which which he has, are are um, most likely friends of his and they are continuing to invest. Um, there's a reason we want competition. I say in the book, they're far ahead. SpaceX is far ahead and will likely remain so for the next decade unless Elon trips. Those are my words in the book. Well, last year, did NASA select SpaceX to build its human landing system for the moon? Yes. And as I say, we've put a lot on this company's shoulders um, because the plan was to select two landers for the moon, but Congress hadn't given NASA enough money for two landers, so they down-selected to just one, and that's SpaceX. When we did the commercial cargo and the commercial crew programs at NASA, we selected two providers. Again, you can see why that would be the case. Monopolies tend to be bad things, and uh, also if someone has problems, these are not easy things to accomplish. Um, you at least have another option. So yes, it is now a critical part of what NASA is calling the Artemis program, which is the sister of Apollo in Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. And Artemis is uh, planning to land people on the moon in the middle of this decade. And the lander is being built by SpaceX. My guest on today is Leonard Lopate at large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org is Laurie Garver. Her book, Escaping Gravity, My Quest to Transform NASA and Launch a New Space Age, is published by Diversion Books. Now, Elon Musk obviously likes you. He said this about you, quote, Lori made a real difference to the future of space flight. Most people put their career first, so they play politics and pander to the vested interests. But there are some who truly care about humanity's future in space and will do the right thing in the face of immense opposition. We're fortunate to have several such people in NASA senior leadership, and Lori was one of them. And Lori did a lot of good. <laughs> you must have been pleased when you saw that. <laughs> well, certainly, and it also was before all, uh, a lot of these latest stuff. I haven't been in touch with Elon in a while. In fact, my latest direct um, communication with him was a little bit of a dust-up on Twitter 
where he called something I had said ridiculous and his bros came after me. I mean, this is not, I've never worked for Elon. I know there's been a lot of speculation that I had my thumb on the scale for SpaceX. It's not at all true. Do you drive a Tesla? I do not. (laughs) He should have given you one. That's at least Uh, a lot of people have said that. And I said, you know, I, I, I just wouldn't accept it. And I feel like um, we always need a competition. Any company who was able to do what they have, and the, the proof of this is so many people at NASA reluctantly went into this program and have now embraced it. Um, they really are just an innovative company. And the next big thing on their plate is Starship. And as I say in the book, if it becomes operational, it will really be revolutionary. It could carry 100 people to Mars. Now, there's mm. a big leap to get there. Um, but some of the stories in the book about Elon, I think, will be um, of interest to people who who both, you know, Elon has supporters and haters. And I am, uh, of course, a supporter of SpaceX, and I am happy for his investment, as I am for Jeff's and Blue Origin. Um, I, I've i never been a sycophant, and, you know, that doesn't make his followers very happy, no matter how, you know, how much you've done. The policies I drove, as you can see from some of the blurbs on the book, are were required for SpaceX to be where they are today, but um, that is not... That, that is not something Elon's ever said. Oh, you know, we couldn't have done it without you. I, th- I think it's a very, I think I have a healthy relationship with him having never worked for him. Well, you say that they'll be taking 100 people to Mars. Uh, am I, should I, I said assume? they could okay, if but it works. Would they be mostly <laughs> astronauts or would they be mostly private citizens who just want the thrill? And are willing uh-huh. to pay the price. Well, it would it would be more astronauts than NASA even has these days. So no, his plan is over the longer term to develop Mars as you know a a, a own sustaining civilization, and ultimately, I think his number is something like fifty million people to do that. It's a, it's it's a multi generational vision. A hundred people, these would not be government employees in his vision. Again, you know, crystal ball, very cloudy about Mars. In my view, my bet right now would be NASA will be leading such a mission, probably internationally, hopefully internationally. This is a geopolitical, um, NASA has always been a geopolitical tool. And certainly it would seem like first time we go to another planet. It should be as Earthlings, right? So if we do that, I think a company like SpaceX could provide those services at a fraction of the cost of what we would be doing if we hadn't evolved to this new system for public-private partnerships. And let's face it, if if Elon and SpaceX are going there anyway, buying a couple of seats for, for NASA uh, would be a lot cheaper than developing ourselves. So that's yet to play out. Chapters yet unwritten. In the foreword that Walter Isaacson wrote for your book, he raises the question of whether it's big government or entrepreneurship that leads to breakthrough innovations in science. Um, uh, do you, do you have uh, does this whole thing have the support of Republicans in Congress? Because they tend to support 
private businesses? One of my favorite things about this is, is it's not partisan. It's very bipartisan. In the early years, it was driven more, I think, by conservative Republicans, a lot of these space pirates, um, much earlier than Elon and Jeff back in the 80s and 90s, had a more libertarian bent. Some of this comes from science fiction writers, um, similarly sort of patriarchal and let's, you know, don't tread on me, I'm going to the moon <laughs> uh, without, you know, the government. That's the kind of science fiction that inspired a lot of people to do this, I think, including Elon and Jeff. But right now, it's very bipartisan because truly um, what it is, is it, I, I say, instead of being partisan, it's parochial. The people who like the old way of doing business for NASA and the military are the ones who have these bases or in NASA's case, centers in their districts, therefore jobs. So the people who have been supporting, I think the reduced operational costs, allowing NASA to spend its valuable tax dollars on more cutting edge technologies and new scientific discoveries, that's that's more bipartisan. That tends to be everybody who who really is a steward of taxpayers should be for this. Well, I, I've heard that uh, there are any number of Republicans who are opposed to the situation because they uh, were supporting the, the, uh, the companies that were providing military equipment and other things to the government. So especially in those states yeah. like Alabama and Texas, that's right, where where they had contracts and where we have NASA centers. The Project on Government Oversight, a nonpartisan watchdog organization, has argued that, quote, after 20 years of endless war in which trillions of dollars were spent and hundreds of thousands died on all sides without the U.S. military achieving anything approaching victory, the Pentagon continues to be funded at staggering levels while funding to deal with the greatest threats to our safety and national security from the pandemic to climate change to white supremacy proves woefully inadequate. Where does the space program fit into that? So I put that quote in the epilogue because to me, as we've been discussing, there's just so much we can do with this model that will help um, society. And to me, we become in the government and I've been in a government a couple of times and I've been a bureaucrat and it's not, doesn't have to be a negative term, but we're very process oriented. And so we tend to do the same things that we've been doing. It's the relentless momentum of the status quo. But what we were able to do with this program at NASA is set a goal and let people work to accomplish it. And I think if we can, within our society, recognize that our the threats to our safety, security, welfare have, uh, have outpaced our solutions and we haven't been keeping up with our processes. Of course, we found this in the pandemic. It, it was this huge threat to the nation. Um, we, we really haven't spent enough money being able to be prepared for these threats. Climate change is the biggest one I talk about in the book. To me, um, this, what we've learned from space has helped so much, but also what we've learned by saying, you know, we all want the same things. And we don't want to have people suffering, hungry, um, not able to have personal freedoms, losing their homes. Um, we can all agree to that. We ought to be able to come up with some solutions um, 
in, in order to solve these problems, instead of just getting bogged down and doing the same thing over and over, which as, as, as that quote says, you know, the three quarters of a trillion dollars um, in military spending, much of it not spent fighting wars that we are currently likely to see. Dwight D. Eisenhower uh, signed the law that established NASA in 1958, uh, but despite having been a, a five-star general, didn't he cut the defense budget by 27% during his time in office? Was that a positive step? Yes. Um, one of the same epilogue. Now we have um, this example to me. I try to make this point that it doesn't make you safer just to spend more money, uh, just like it doesn't make NASA better just to spend more money. Of course, the communities involved in these programs always want more money. That's their incentive. And for the private sector, they've got a show shareholder return. They absolutely can go out and lobby and do that. My fault, I, I think the, the blame I give is to those in government who don't take the leadership positions to set up policies that are more effective for the taxpayer. We're supposed to be stewards of the taxpayer dollars, elected representatives and those of us as part of the government um, really get, I think, too cozy in relationships and find, well, it's easier just to do the same thing. Um, whereas, truthfully, that's that's not why we're here. That's not why we have a government. And I think we're seeing um, this is not a sustainable plan. Well, you worked for Barack Obama. Were the policies at NASA continued when Donald Trump became president? And uh, are they con continuing today under Joe Biden? One of the myths about uh, NASA is that presidents come in and change all their goals. It's, it's just not not true. Um, most of NASA continues because their programs are decadal. You know, the Webb Telescope, goodness, started in the 90s. We came in and adopted much of what NASA had been doing, but human spaceflight was on the rocks. We had the shuttle retiring and no replacement that uh, was going to be ready in time to even launch before the space station was deorbited, even though that was its destination. Putting in the commercial crew program was our goal. Congress gave us a new vehicle, the Space Launch System, which uh, we were not supportive of, but when Congress, they have the power of the purse, tells you, you gotta do it. That program was supported then by Trump and now by Biden as well, so it continues. They've also both to continued the commercial crew program. So there isn't a lot of, um, change that occurs. I think transitions can be healthy in that it's a time when you can sort of, as I call one chapter, looking under the hood. You know, you don't come into administration and, and lie to the public. At least I didn't think we should like, oh yeah, we're on track to do this by a certain date for this amount of money. And, and, and we weren't. I think now we still have a disconnect between what we're saying and what our ability is. And the space launch system, one of the biggest concerns I have now about the NASA program is that system was supposed to cost $10 billion and launch by 2017. It still hasn't launched and we're 20 billion in. So um, that's a cost plus contract and that's the incentive. And we need to shift that. In 2008, you were asked to review NASA for 
then-candidate Barack Obama. Uh, at that time, NASA's space shuttle was scheduled to be retired in two years, and the only remaining option was to pay the Russians to transport American astronauts to and from the International Space Station. Um, at that time, didn't you oppose expanding the space shuttle program? Yes. The, you know, one of the things I say, you don't get to choose your time to lead. Um, coming in in 2008, the space shuttle program was scheduled to retire in 2010, and that had been established by President Bush in 2004 as a result of the Columbia accident investigation. Actually, on the transition team, you're not really making you know, you're not in charge for sure. And, and you're really just teeing up options. So I'm collecting data. I go to the head of the space shuttle program and say, hey, could we extend it? Like, can I give this option to the president? And this gentleman's Bill Gerstemeyer. Uh, he now works for SpaceX, ironically. And he told me, no, we cannot restart the shuttle program. The third tier suppliers have been let go. It would take years and billions of dollars to bring those systems back online. I said, can we fly anymore? And he said, I've got one external tank uh, and maybe a second. Let me look into it. And we ended up flying two more missions to fulfill as much as we could of the scientific experiments that had already been created and to get the space station supplied to last until we had more vehicles ready um, to take astronauts and cargo to and from there. There was no path for, for human space flight when I came in in 08 that didn't include paying the Russians to launch our astronauts to the space station. It was, it was just at a horrible time. And I came into that. And as we started out this conversation, I think I became the target of, of people's um, derision because we that was letting people go during the shuttle retirement. There were many layoffs and I, I was the easiest target. And I think people thought, well, if they could just blame this on me, maybe they'd get more money to do just the same old thing. But it, we, we compromised and we got a little of both. In light of the current tensions, what's the, the current state of the U.S.-Russian space agreement? This is such a fascinating aspect of space since we started in the Cold War and we wouldn't even have a human spaceflight program without uh, competing with the Russians. We then, in the 1990s, sort of post-perestroika, embraced the Russians to try to, I think, have Russia be able to employ their technical labor market to do things that were peaceful uh, rather than uh, harmful. And we merged our human spaceflight programs. I mean, there's almost not another word for it. Our space stations, our modules on orbit are locked together. We share resources such as propulsion and we have Russian cosmonauts hmm. and American astronauts living and working together on orbit for the last 20 years. So today, since the invasion, um, that continues because there is not an option. It is already the plan to replace the space station, the U.S.'s plan to have private sector develop 
less costly, more efficient um, orbital platforms for scientific research and for people now that tourists are paying to go to visit as well. The Russians won't be involved in those, but they're years away. Um, so we're at a delicate time. And I, I'm not aware of another program, uh, especially one so high visibility that the United States government is continuing with the Russian government. Um, the astronauts say privately, they just really don't discuss the situation. And they, for the last 20 years, have been, we've been really proud of our ability to work together. Um, I, I'm a little surprised it hasn't received more attention because it's really a fascinating test of how we can, at least in space, should we be cooperating with adversaries, knowing that we could end up, again, trying to count on people who we no longer feel we should be supporting. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Zoom, 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 we're going to the moon. Zoom, 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 we're going very soon. If you want to take a trip, climb aboard the rocket ship. Zoom, 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 we're going to the moon. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Laurie Garver. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Escaping Gravity, My Quest to Transform NASA and Launch a New Space Age. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. That's give and then the number to WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. Do it during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy of the book. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Lori Garver. Now, uh, let's talk a bit about your past. Uh, you, uh, What was your path to working at NASA? Weren't your original interest in economics and political science? Yes, one of the reasons I think that I, I was able to see that this transformation needed to happen was because I didn't come from the typical background of people who, who have ended up in those jobs traditionally. I grew up in Michigan. I didn't have any engineers or scientists in my family. My, one of my uncles was a veterinarian, but we were from farming roots and my grandfather and uncle were state representatives uh, helping pass laws, just of course, that's not a full-time job in Michigan. They were Republicans. And we, as I grew up, was campaigning, as I say in the book, before I could walk, because my there's pictures of my grandpa carrying me in, in parades. But, you know, it was a time when public service seemed this was a positive thing that really was a responsibility. My father was a stockbroker. And at that time, also the 1960s and 70s, he was genuinely excited about being able to help get investment investors to 
companies that were making new miracle drugs and so forth. So I came and went to college. I got an economics and political science degrees and moved to Washington, D.C. I had never been there in my life, but I thought, well, that's where you can make change. And I, I worked just for John Glenn on his presidential campaign. He didn't get very far in the campaign, but that was my first real introduction to space. I remember the moon landings. I was eight in Apollo 11, but it never seemed like a realistic career for me. As a woman, did you have a disadvantage? I was thinking about Sally Ride. Uh, that many men went up in space before she finally went up as the, the first American in space. 73, in I believe. Yes. 1983. 1983. <laughs> oh, no, but I'm saying 73 men before oh, her. Yes. Not that I'm counting. The, two, but, the yes. two Russian women had gone up and then she went yes. up in 1983. Since then, there have been any number, but... Uh, for a long time, this was just seen as the province of men. Correct. And I'm sure that had very much to do with my my lack of the, the similar type of interest growing up. Oh, I'm going to be an astronaut. But I also, in the 1970s in mid-Michigan, a small public school, I had taken all the science and math in, before my senior year. And I come back senior year, there were five other people who had taken all the science and math. They were all boys. But they had been contacted by the school, coordinated to go take calculus at Michigan State nearby. No one ever reached out to me. And I say, as I say in the book, my mother was more upset by this than I was at the time. But let's face it, that channeled me into the social sciences. I had a real aptitude for science and math and interest, but it wasn't encouraged. And if I hadn't, I wasn't taking calculus in high school, you weren't really going to go in to be an engineer in college. These are very early decisions, and you just never know uh, how that impacts a generation. And in my case, um, some of those boys who took calculus noted my career and felt maybe it was a little unfair that I didn't take calculus, and I got to be number two at NASA. But um, I really think that me having this more broad perspective about the space program ended up helping. And you became the deputy administrator at NASA? Yes, I did. Number two. As that in that job, you battled against the current NASA administrator, former Senator Bill Nelson of Florida. What were some of the issues you were fighting over? Well, I certainly didn't start out battling Bill Nelson, uh, who was a senator of Florida at the time as a Democrat. I'm appointed by a Democratic uh, new president. Senator Nelson supported my and Charlie's nomination and when our first budget came out, I contacted him right away. He was friends with Charlie, so I assume he and Charlie were speaking about it more often. And I was trying to get him to understand how our program would really help Florida because lowering launch costs, that's where you're going to launch from. And you're going to have a really vibrant commercial base. But he really was more wedded to the cost plus contracts. Of course, that's how we had been doing things. And he was not supportive of the plan we put forward in the Obama administration's first budget. So we butt heads a bit. I have a few of those stories in the book. Um, and a few things were very un unpleasant, our interactions. And I'm sorry that that happened. Of course, when I wrote the book, I had no idea he was going to be back at NASA. He's in his late 70s, 78 or 79. But that is who President Biden appointed 
to lead NASA. Uh, since he's been back, he's been supporting the commercial crew program as well as the cost plus programs like SLS. So right now we've still got, I think, some decisions to make in the future, but he's in the spot to make them. Well, you mentioned Florida, but isn't NASA spread out over a number of states? Florida, Texas, it's centered in Houston to some degree, isn't it? And then California, also the the, the Southwest. Why, why biggest... spread it out so many different places? Well, this is very directly um, harkens back to the beginning. NASA has always been quite aware of its funding and how powerful senators who were leading their committees got centers in their districts. I mean, there's no um, mystery to it. That's, of course, similar to military bases. Uh, Since then, what is also fascinating is these members of Congress self-select for what committees they're on. So, of course, they're going to select, oh, well, I want to, I'm from Texas, I want to be on the NASA committee. And then that is the cycle that just continues because then they just want to pour more money into that of their own state and that center. Yes, Houston is still, they used to call it the manned uh, um, space flight center, the Johnson Space Center. It is our largest, but California has two centers. Florida is where we launch from. Alabama is where we build the rockets. There's always been a powerful senator from Alabama there, Mississippi as well. But Ohio uh, and Virginia also have NASA centers. They do more of the aeronautics and technology work than human spaceflight. So where does uh, a, a, a program like Commercial Crew fit into this picture? Commercial Crew was the program that we put in place when we found the shuttle retiring and the replacement program at least five years behind schedule in its first four years of development. Um, I had been at NASA in the 1990s and I knew the administrator at that time had put in a program to replace the shuttle that was a private public partnership. I felt that was the most reasonable thing to do. It would be the most successful, again, trying to get out of this cost plus contracting mechanism that rewarded bad behavior. And But that program was not something that NASA itself wanted to do. It wasn't something the head of NASA wanted to do, or certainly um, people in Congress who had the jobs in their district. It was a threat. Bill Nelson was debating it. Of course. It, it was. They considered it a threat to the cost plus big programs that they were already, of course, getting a lot of campaign dollars from, and they wanted to know where it was these dollars were going to go. When you have a competition, you don't know who's going to win. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Lori Garver. Her book, Escaping Gravity, My Quest to Transform NASA and Launch a New Space Age, is published by Diversion Books. So what what were your responsibilities as a NASA Deputy Administrator? What's the role NASA is a a unique agency that has very few political appointees. Out of around 18,000 employees, we had roughly 20 who were political appointed, meaning you serve at the pleasure of the president. Um, There are only three that are 
Senate confirmed political appointees. I was one of those three. So the administrator, the deputy, and the chief financial officer. Our role is to advance um, a space program, just like any other government employee, because I'm paid by your tax dollars, that is uh, the most efficient and effective and aligns with the policies of the administration you serve. So it's an interesting thing for NASA because we're not a cabinet agency, but we're bigger than some of the cabinet agencies. So as deputy, I had some really interesting government-wide roles. There's a deputies council, for instance, where we looked at efficiency of government across the board. We work very closely with the Office of Science Technology Policy to implement their agenda. And in the Obama case, that was to drive technology to out-innovate our competitors. And so the programs I proposed at NASA, which many of them are succeeding now, um, were aligned with that, that vision. So yes, people might expect, why aren't you an engineer? You're in the senior position at NASA. Uh, these are not positions where you're making engineering decisions. I mean, we were flying shuttles and I was at every launch and landing and very, very close to the program when there were delays. What I found at NASA was there are brilliant people who can explain technical things to you. And that was critical because I was often speaking in the media, explaining it then to the public. And in some ways, I think that's that's a positive. When you're a certain type of engineer, that's the kind of rocket you want to put money on. Or say you're an astrophysicist, you think that NASA should be doing primarily astrophysics. I came at this like NASA is a crown jewel of our nation. And the things that we do in the atmosphere and space on behalf of the public should be done in, they, they should be focused on things that return positive benefit to our nation. That's the goal. You weren't fighting to make changes in NASA on your own. Who were the, what you call the handful of revolutionaries, your allies who were working with you? As I said, so much of this started much earlier. And as I was in the space industry starting in uh, the early 1980s, I call them space pirates um, in the book. These are the early people who believed and knew that post-Apollo, we had not made advancements into space and human flight, especially along the lines that everyone expected. And the reason was we hadn't lowered the cost. And the reason was we hadn't worked in new ways with the private sector to take advantage of technology and innovation. So these are people who have spent decades trying to effect policies. Even back in 1984, we got a law in place called the Commercial Space Launch Act. I, I have the position that NASA developing, owning and operating its own rocket, competing with our own industry, isn't even allowed in legislation. But, you know, when you're arguing that to the lawmakers, it's, it's, I'm not going to win the argument. There were some interesting things that uh, you had to deal with along the way. Dr. Edward Weiler was the Associate Administrator for the Science Mission Doctorate until 2011. What does that position oversee, and what were the problems you saw in his behavior? What was he trying Ed, to do? Ed, Ed Weiler was one of the people who, he, longtime NASA employee. At the time I was back in 2008, 
eight and nine, he was running all of the science program. It's about a $6 billion program. And similar to human spaceflight, it had become somewhat calcified. You had cost overruns, like we've already talked about with the Mars Science Lab that caused delays and increased budget. And every time that happens, you've got to get that from somewhere. And one of the stories I tell in the book is about how the cost overruns in the Mars Science Lab impacted the next Mars mission, which was supposed to be ExoMars. We were doing it in cooperation with Europe. Um, but when we had to cancel that as part of this administration, Ed was very unhappy because he had already made these arrangements, of course, with his friends on the other side of the pond in Europe. And so was likely embarrassed that the United States wasn't going to continue. Um, the story I tell in, in the book goes into more detail, but he- Well, you accuse him of unethical behavior. He, That's a good he considered hard. me, uh, I think, he, you know, his- his quotes in, in the book are that I, I was the unethical one. And so, yes, I, I detail why that was the opposite. You're the founder of Earthrise Alliance. What does that organization do? Earthrise is a project I started with um, a family philanthropy that was donating money to help better utilize the satellite data we have to address climate change. Satellites have been able to detect, sorry about my dog there. Well, your dog obviously uh, is upset <laughs> by what you said about Edward Weiler. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that must be it. Um, we have known about climate change largely because of um, satellites. That mm -hmm. data has allowed us to model what's happening and the interactions between the atmosphere, the land, uh, and the oceans and ice. And Earthrise allows us to have more of that data be impactful for decision makers. So have you so seen any positive results so far in, uh, in learning about things in the fight against climate change? Oh my goodness, we wouldn't know almost anything about it without satellites. But in Earthrise, yes, what we do is work with journalists to tell the story through satellite imagery. We actually got some of our maps that measure uh, greenhouse gas emissions from satellites to envoy, climate envoy Kerry, and he used them in his discussions with China to show that we know where your emissions and leaks are coming from and you cannot hide from satellites. So it's a really important piece of the puzzle to both, I think, um, adapt to climate change, but ultimately try and combat it. And you're also a co-founder of the Brooke Owens Fellowship, which uh, offers internship and mentorship for collegiate women interested in careers in space. Uh, what are some of the opportunities that these young women are being given these days? Or is there still a, um, a problem for women trying to get into this kind of area? Well, for much of my career, people have said, oh, you know, girls, women aren't as interested in this kind of thing. And I just don't believe it's true. Again, there's a lack of role models. So that's working one end of the problem. But we provide paid internships to collegiate women in aerospace across interests, primarily engineering and sciences, at the very companies we've been talking about. So Traditional companies are now involved. At the beginning, it was the SpaceX and Blue Origin, and there's 
hundreds of companies now who are wanting to be involved and have paid internships for Brooke Owens Fellows. We even started a, a second fellowship uh, for Black college students. It's called the Patty Grace Smith Fellowship, a woman who was in our field who died as well. These are named after important women who um, are no longer with us and just wanting to make their light still shine. So hundreds of formerly disadvantaged people entering the workforce every year now due to these fellowships. We also give them mentorship and of course provide this cohort. Part of this is they just didn't see people who looked like them in this field. And I think it doesn't, it, it, it's also because we are doing different things with our space program. Well, it, we have it, to leave it on that very positive right. note because we've run out of time. But my great thanks to my guest, Laurie Garver, L-O-R-I Garver. Her book, Escaping Gravity, My Quest to Transform NASA and Launch a New Space Age, is published by Diversion Books. What a pleasure it's been talking with you. Thank you so much. Nice to talk with you. Thanks. And that brings us to the end of our show. A great thanks to Kate Guan Allison for all of her help in preparing today's interview and to Reggie Johnson, our audio engineer, and Keziah Glow, our executive producer, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. You can also check us out on Twitter. Um, but um, before I go today, I need to start you, uh, alert you to a very serious problem that's facing this station. BAI is now two months behind in paying the fee to have our signal transmitted from the broadcast tower at Four Times Square. The rent comes to $17,000 a month, and we're asking our listeners to step up and support us financially as we struggle to stay afloat and on the air during these difficult times. Because as uh, we don't we don't take money from uh, any place but our listeners. We are totally listener-supported. So if you haven't already done it, please make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to help keep the the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. You can also go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give, the number two, WBAI.org. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopez at Large right now can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, Escaping Gravity, My Quest to Transform NASA and Launch a New Space Age by Laurie Garver. So make that call, 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. And uh, I hope that you can join us on Monday when Sergio Miller will discuss his new book, No Wider War, A History of the Vietnam War. Have a great weekend.